Good morning, everybody. My name is Willis, an alcoholic, and I belong to the Shediac Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. And those three declarative sentences tell you everything there is to know about me. You now know my name, you now know what I am, and you now know where I belong. And I feel something like Elizabeth Taylor's next husband. I know what I'm here for, but can I make it interesting? <laughs> and uh, the other important fact that you need to know about me is that I'm a Newfoundlander. And uh, thank you. If there are any noofs in the room, will you stand up? Yay! Good. I'll talk to you later, my dear. And of course, it, it would be inappropriate for a Newfoundlander to travel halfway across Canada and not tell a couple of newfie jokes. And, and the, the first one that comes to mind is the story of the guy who was, who was out having a few, as we say in Newfoundland, on a Saturday night, and he was, he was crawling home somewhere in the, the dark hours of the morning, and he somehow got into a cemetery, and he fell into a grave, an open grave, and he didn't know where he was. And he felt around, and he could feel clay, and then he passed out. And when he woke in the morning, the sun was hitting him smack in the face. And he looked around, and he said, oh, my God, I'm in a grave. And he got up on his tippy toes, and he looked around, and there was nothing around him except a sea of tombstones. And he fell to his knees in absolute horror. He said, blessed mother of God, is resurrection morning, and I'm the first one up. <laughs> that would scare you. The, the other one I love, I love, I love stories about drunks and old people, and uh, I'm getting to be both, you know, but uh, this, this old couple were sitting on the porch uh, in the rocking chairs after 65 years of marriage, and they're rocking back and forth, and, and, uh, and Martha said, George, he said, yes, my dear. She said, George, we've been married 65 years. He said, yes, my dear. She said, George. He said, yes, my dear, how come you don't hold my hand like you used to? So he reached out and he took a hold of her hand. And 20 minutes went by and she said, George, he said, yes, my dear, how come you don't put your arm around me like you used to? So he leaned over and he put his arm around her. And 20 minutes later, she said, George, he said, yes, my dear. She said, how come you don't nibble on my ear like you used to? And he got up and he started to go in the house. He said, she said, George, where's you going? He said, I'm going to get me teeth. <laughs> this, this is a, a tremendous weekend for me for a number of reasons. Uh, yesterday, thanks to Gary, uh, Michelin and I, my wife uh, by marriage, uh, <laughs> the civilian in my life, She's one, she's one of those people who can have a drink, and uh, she, she, she leaves that, you know, has a glass of wine and leaves half it in the glass, and I'm still, after eight years, I'm still trying to figure that out, and someday I will. Uh, anyway, we got to go to Gimli, and Manitoba has a special uh, place in my heart and in my life. I was a 17-year-old kid, almost 17, when I came to Gimli 50 years ago this year. I came to Gimli to go to school because my parents uh, couldn't afford to send me to university in Newfoundland, so I came to Gimli to get my grade 12, which was the equivalent of first year university. And we lived on Third Avenue. I, my brother was in the Air Force at 3 AFS, and it was in Gimli that I had my first drink. So uh, it is full circle today here in Winnipeg. It was in Gimli that I did my first stint on radio, it, uh, or in Winnipeg, and it was in Gimli and Winnipeg and Selkirk that I wrote my first newspaper column for the Selkirk Enterprise. And I've been fooling around with both radio and uh, the printed word ever since. And Angie and I are both working on a book. And uh, so we, we have a lot in common. So I'm, I'm so glad to be here. Yesterday, we, we drove up Third Avenue, where I lived in Gimli, and uh, we passed the house. I couldn't find it exactly, uh, but we, when we got to the almost the end of the street, I saw the Lutheran Church, and I knew it was the right 
street and the right location. Because when I was a kid, uh, I had my first drink somewhere around the uh, second week in July of 1957. It was a Saturday night. My brother gave me a bottle of Carling's Red Cap Ale. Okay, and he said, here is a bottle of booze. You can take it and use it, or you can take it and abuse it. The choice is yours. Obviously, I chose the latter, and uh, I'm here. Uh, but I remember that very vividly. I also remember that uh, I had a blackout that night. I went to the Gimli Pavilion, and I learned to dance. Uh, I didn't know that I did, but I did. And I recognized, you know, I've come to the conclusion that alcoholics might be dumb, but they're not stupid. And uh, I came to the conclusion somewhere early in 1958 that my drinking was different from the kids that I drank with. And it truly, truly bothered me. And I went to see a Lutheran pastor, and uh, I talked to him, and he said this to me. And it haunted me for years. It would haunt me for the next 15 years. He said, Lad, you are running away from God and you are never going to be happy until you find him. And I didn't know how prophetic those words were at that point in my life. I was later to accept totally that that man told me the absolute truth. I went back to Newfoundland after a year. Newfoundlanders loved to go back home. I taught school. I got into broadcasting, and uh, I, I fulfilled my dream. I was 11 years old when I heard Foster Hewitt do uh, a game out of Maple Leaf Gardens in, from the gondola, when he used to say, hello, Canada, and hockey fans in Newfoundland and the United States. See, I'm a diminishing breed. I went to bed the 31st of March, 1949, a full-blown Newfoundlander, and I woke up the next morning a Canadian. <laughs> now, you can tell me why you drank, okay? <laughs> I got into broadcasting, and it was the fulfillment of a dream because I had told my brother when I, I, did, I listened to that first game that I was, I was going to do that someday, and I did. And I, I started to drink seriously when I got into broadcasting, because all of a sudden, you know, I'm a somebody. And I had not been a somebody. I just felt nebulous, un, unknown for most of my life. And broadcasting gave me some kind of verification. And I, uh, I laugh now because it never occurred to me, you know, when I started in radio, uh, that there was a button on the radio that said off, that people could turn it off. And I, in spite of myself, I succeeded. I, I started a little private station. I went to Gander, Newfoundland with uh, what the guy in Quebec called the Canadian Broadcorps in Castoration. And, and, uh, I worked in radio in Gander for four and a half years, and it was a wonderful spot because it was still uh, a dropping-off place for most of the world leaders on or uh, going from New York, on their way to or going from New York. And uh, so I got to meet a lot of very important people, and I was impressed by that. This, you know, snotty-nosed Newfoundland kid was getting to talk to uh, world leaders, and I thought that made me somebody. And I discovered that my drinking continued to escalate, and finally, in uh, 1966, uh, I was in very deep trouble. Uh, if you've ever been to Gander, Newfoundland, at the airport there, there's a wonderful place called the Big Dipper Bar, which is open 24-7, and uh, I invested a lot of money in the Big Dipper Bar, and I can tell you that there are 42 bottles on the rack. I know there are 42, because one night I drank 41 and uh, passed out before I got to the 42nd. But Gander had, had this thing, and I, <laughs> I had a, an occasion to get drunk on Friday and stay drunk till Wednesday and went to work on Wednesday afternoon, and uh, I had to go to the bathroom, which was another problem that uh, my drinking uh, presented. I, I developed bowel and bladder complications, if you know what I mean. And uh, I got in the bathroom, and I fell off the toilet, and I got jammed between the hot water toilet and uh, the hot water heater and the toilet, and I couldn't get up. And I had to take the door off. And uh, they got me out of there, and then they sent me home. And uh, I reported back the next morning, and the manager, you know, you know, 
the book says it's cunning, baffling, powerful. And the manager said to me, Stidley, when you're sober, you're the best announcer I have. And I knew I had him. You know, I knew he wasn't going to fire me. And a few months later, I got transferred to television. Well, if you thought my ego was big in radio, you should have seen it when I got to television. Uh, I was I was dry. Uh, the, the condition that they were keeping me was, in 1966, was that I not drink for six months. And so I quit for life again. And uh, then I got transferred to television in Corner Brook, which is the second city in Newfoundland. And uh, it was there that I was to meet the man who was destined to change my life and bring me to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was there about three or four months, and I was pontificating one night on my greatness, you know, uh, that I hadn't had a drink for X number of months and that I was never going to drink again. And this guy, who L reminds me of him, uh, whose name is Cliff, and you'll hear a little of Cliff this morning, he about L's size and, and had the same demeanor, you know, and he smiled a lot like L does, and he used to make me sick because uh, he was happy. And uh, so I'm, I'm giving this great dissertation on my ability and my greatness, and he said, Punk, you're going to drink again. And I didn't like him, you know, when he said that. And uh, I said, oh, no, 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 no. He said, Punk, you're going to drink again. And when you drink again, and when you get tired of being sick and tired, call me. And I thought you'd be the last bastard on God's earth that I would call. Okay. He said, I belong to an organization called Alcoholics Anonymous, and you belong there too. Well, I didn't disappoint Cliff. I drank again, and it lasted about three months. And then came that infamous Saturday in June of 1968. And by the way... Uh, because of you and because of Alcoholics Anonymous and because of people like Cliff and because of the 12 steps, uh, I have been sober 38 years and seven months today. Thank you. I don't tell you that to impress you, but I want to tell you, it sure as hell impresses me. <laughs> I didn't plan to stay that long when I got here. And uh, so I... I uh, I had that famous Saturday in June of 1968. See, there, there are important words with alcoholism, like yet. Yet is a very, very important word. And I had two things going for me. I didn't slur and I didn't stagger when I drank. And I could be drunk as a skunk. And I could go on and read the news and you would never know. I'd gotten drunk on radio a couple of times, but you know, you can't see somebody there and you're never certain if the band is off a bit or if they're drunk. And uh, so I... Uh, I showed up on Saturday night at the television station to read the 7.30 news. I started to drink at 9 o'clock in the morning. My neighbor had just gotten back from the United States, and he brought back three magnums, and I wanted to help him out with that. And uh, so we killed a magnum of whiskey, and then we went to a club. And somewhere about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I went into a blackout. Uh, but I somehow must have recalled around 6 o'clock that I had to read the news, so I got up to the television station. And I walked in in my usual debonair manner. Uh, my former wife and had taken our two sons out to the A&W because she didn't want them to see their father drunk again. And uh, so I, I got home and I changed, put on a shirt and tie and a, and a jacket and got a cab up to the television station, walked in and said, where's the news? You know, and walked into the studio and sat there and the lights came on and so did the idiot, you know. Uh, cameraman gave me the cue. I hadn't eaten all day, and uh, uh, I was about three weeks into a drunk then, and uh, I had never slurred, never slurred, yet. And that night, yet kicked in. And what a hundred thousand people in western and central Newfoundland heard was, good evening, here's the CBC And it went downhill from there. Now, the people in the control room uh, didn't catch it, you know. For the first minute, they thought there was something wrong with the microphone. <laughs> and there was. There was a drunken idiot sitting behind it. <laughs> and then they tried to get rid of me. Now, have you, <laughs> you ever tried to get rid of somebody when they're full-blown, you know, and really going at it? And the, the cameraman slash floor director got in front of the camera and he started to do this, which is a sign for wind it up. And I just went blissfully on, you know. 
I, I don't know if I even saw mine. And by the way, this is all secondhand. I don't remember a thing about it. All right? And I guess he finally got in front of the camera, you know, chop, 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 get out, get out. And I still went blissfully on. And, and uh, any relevance between what was on the paper and what I was saying was purely a coincidence, I'm sure. And finally the director said, if he, st if he stops at the end of the paragraph, I'm going to yell, cut. And of course, television is audio and video, and uh, you have to get everything synced in. So he yelled, cut, at the end of the paragraph, and 100,000 people thought something happened to their television, because it went black. And I was telling this uh, story at a talk I was giving one time, and there was a lady at the back of the hall, and she said, oh my God. And I talked to her after the meeting. She said, I was watching you that night, and I thought my television broke. <laughs> anyway, they, uh, they managed to get me out of there into a docking area, and I was crying because I'd lost my glasses. And I said, <laughs> I said to the cameraman, for God's sake, call Cliff. And I have absolutely no recollection of doing that. I have absolutely no recall. And I guess he was so surprised that this egomaniac alcoholic would do that, that he asked me to repeat it. And I said, Clancy, please, I'm in trouble. Would you call Cliff? And so he called Cliff. And he didn't have to tell Cliff what was going on. Cliff was watching television. <laughs> and Cliff came and he picked up the body. And it was neither vertical nor horizontal, couldn't stand, couldn't sit, uh, didn't know its own name. And he took me to a 12-step club. And he talked to me for about four hours. And about 9.30, I came out of the blackout. And uh, he explained what had happened and I wanted to die. In fact, I have considered dying so uh, for the last three months, the last drunk. Uh, my, my drinking progressed to a stage where I was daily suicidal during that period. And the Thursday before, I had driven 17 miles outside the city of Cornerbrook, and I found a place that will mean absolutely nothing to you but is sacred ground to me. It's called Gallant's Hill, and it runs up on the Trans-Canada Highway about 300 feet. And there's a guardrail on the right side, and when you get to the top of the hill, there's a 50-foot opening in the guardrail. And I made a rational decision. I was sober at the time, or at least partially sober. And I decided that if I could take that car and get it up to 80 miles an hour and push it through that opening in the guardrail and let it fall 300 feet onto Newfoundland granite, I could kill myself in such a way that it would look accidental and that my $500,000 group life insurance policy would kick in and my sons would be looked after. And on Sunday morning, June the 29th, 1968, I showered and shaved. I hadn't slept. And I had made up my mind that the time had come to end this. I was not successful at anything, least of all staying sober, and I wanted to die. I just simply wanted the pain to go away. And so I kissed my two sons and her. I said, I'm going out. And just as I put my hand on the doorknob, the telephone rang. And it sounds terribly histrionic, but it's true. It's the way it happened, and I don't need to tell you who was on the other end of that phone. It was Cliff. And he said, what are you doing? And I lied again. You know, I said, nothing, because you don't tell somebody you're going to commit suicide if you're less stupidly. You don't do that. And he said, why don't you come down for a cup of tea and a chat? We don't drink a lot of coffee in Newfoundland. We drink tea. And I made a decision that I didn't realize at the time, but know now beyond any shadow of doubt, that I was, that decision changed my life. And I went, instead of turning to my right and going out to Gallant's Hill, I turned left and went to Cliff's place. And that afternoon, in his living room, looking out at the beautiful Bay of Islands, 
I was 12 steps. And I went there expecting the lecture, you know, the failure lecture, I used to call it. You've done it again, you've done it again, you've done it again. And I felt a failure as a son, a husband, a father, a brother, an employee. I had shame, guilt, and remorse more than I needed and was unable to handle. And Cliff didn't do any of that. He didn't, he didn't give me the lecture. See, I was called an alcoholic by my sister, Jane, whom uh, Michelin and I will visit tomorrow for a few days. She's a nurse, or was a nurse, and she had been married to an alcoholic. And I was visiting her in St. John's and almost burned her house down one time. And she was driving me back to the airport, and she looked across from me. She was driving, thank God, and she said, you're nothing but a bloody alcoholic. And I wanted to kill her. And I used to lovingly refer to her after that as the bitch. You know? And the night of my drunk in Corner Brook, the telephone rang about 10.30. And it was Jane. And she said, you've done it again. And I said, yes. And this was the second time in less than two years that I had been drunk on the air. And she said, here's what you're going to know, and here's what you need to know, and I'm only going to say it once, and you better get it. This is the second time in less than two years you've embarrassed this family. If you do it again, Les, if you do it again, you can consider yourself no longer my brother. Click. And I didn't want to lose her. She's become my best friend, next to my wife. And uh, so Cliff talked to me that morning, and he told me about him, and he told me about what Alcoholics Anonymous had done for him. And he said, if you would like, I would like you to come to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous tonight. And I had nowhere else to go. I was at the last house on the road, and I went to the meeting, and there was an old guy there. He must have been 60. <laughs> and he had a hearing aid and now I have one and his name was Mac and he got his hand out and he didn't have to worry about shaking mine all he had to do was get a hold of it <laughs> I was doing well enough for both of us and he said uh, glad to see you and I knew he was nuts <laughs> and I got inside and I got to the third chair uh, from the back on the right hand side and I said on my hands because by now I had the shakes big time and uh, I hadn't had a drink for about 24 hours, and uh, I was not at all feeling well. And I'm sitting there, not wanting to be there. And this guy came over, and he was dressed in a blue tweed, Harris, Harris tweed uh, blue sports coat. He had a pair of black slacks, shiny shoes, shirt and tie. And uh, I thought he was the AA doctor because he made an immediate, accurate diagnosis. He looked at me and he said, you're not feeling very well, are you? <laughs> and I allowed that I wasn't. And he said, would you like something to drink? Oh my God, would I like something to drink? And he went into the little kitchen in the club and he came out with a half-filled mug of black sweet coffee. And I'm looking at him, and I don't know how I'm going to handle the situation, because now i got to take my hands from under my bum, and i got to take this coffee, and I, I got a hold of it, and I was just vibrating, just terribly, and I could get it there, and I couldn't get it any further than six inches from my face, and I wanted to die of embarrassment. And he said, just a minute, and he took the coffee, and he put it on the floor, and he went back in the kitchen, and he came back out with a teaspoon. And with those lovely pressed navy blue slacks and his Harris tweed sports coat and his shirt and tie, Bill B knelt in front of me and he spoon fed me a half a cup of black sweet AA coffee and something happened. I came from a very religious background. My parents were, were very, very good people and we were accustomed to 
Bible reading and prayer in the house, and I had read a lot of the Bible at one time it considered going into the ministry, and uh, this quote from Scripture came to mind when the carpenter said, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, ye have done it unto me. And that's uh, Sunday night in that club in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland. I was one of the least. I felt it. And here was this man feeding me this coffee. And he knew how I felt. And I knew that he knew how I felt. And I knew that he knew that I knew that we both knew how I felt. And that's called the beginning in Alcoholics Anonymous. And after the meeting was over, some guy got up and talked that night, and, and I was mad as hell at Cliff, because I was sure he called Clyde and told him everything we talked about in the afternoon. And Clyde was not given to diplomacy. You know, big, tall guy. Something like Gary. And uh, I went up to Clyde after, and I said, that was a great speech you gave. And Clyde never missed a beat. He looked at me and he said, well, after the caper you pulled on television last night, it's about time you got here. <laughs> and the big book refers to that as deflation of ego at death. <laughs> and that's what happened. And the journey began. And it has been, without question, the most incredible journey I can imagine. I would not have traded and will not trade one single day of the past 38 years and seven months for the best day I had drunk. And there have been some days during that period of time that were very, very painful. But I would not trade one of them because I have learned here some very basic things. And I've learned how to let go of the ideas that I had. And I'd like to share with you this morning some ideas, old ideas, and the reality of Alcoholics Anonymous. And there are some young people here, people young in the program. And, and if you do nothing else, please hear this through and stay here long enough for the miracle to happen. Because I can assure you, based on nothing more than my own experience, that the miracle will happen if you stay long enough. I can't tell you when, but I know it will happen because it happened to me. It happened to me. See, I was, I was convinced that I was negative and self-deceived. I was different. And the reality was, I was full of fear. That's the real reality. My condition was because of others. If it hadn't been for my religious father and my religious mother, and if it hadn't been for my siblings who didn't understand me, and if it hadn't been for the management of the CBC who didn't know what I was capable of, you know, and on and on and on, and if it hadn't been for the bank managers who made me pay my bills, you know, the reality was that it wasn't them at all. It wasn't the faceless they that we alcoholics look at. I was responsible for my actions and behaviors, and I learned that in Alcoholics Anonymous. An old idea was that I could do it alone. The reality was that I trusted no one. The old idea was that power and intellect will get me through. I really believed I was smarter than you were, because I had people come to my house in Gander, Newfoundland in 1966 when I was going to be fired or stood a chance of being fired, uh, the sheriff came to my door with a writ, and he was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. The writ was for unpaid bills. And he said, Les, I know where you belong. And I said, Martin, where do I belong? He said, you belong to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, oh, hold on a minute. I'm not that bad. I owed about $20,000, and uh, I had creditors climbing all over me, but I wasn't that bad. And I met the manager of the, of the theater in Gander, and he said, uh, I want you to see a movie. I used to do his scripts for him on the air. And I said, what's the movie? He said, The Days of Wine and Roses. And I went to the Gander Theater alone, and I watched The Days of Wine and Roses, and I watched Jack Lemmon go through the greenhouse looking for the bottle, and it was me all over. And I didn't see Jack Lemmon. I saw less, but I wasn't that bad. And I could do it alone. I had the brains to do it. 
I was powerless is the reality. Yeah, absolutely powerless. An old idea was I could solve and control any situation. The reality was my ego was in the way. And I was at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous one time, and somebody said ego is an acronym for easing God out. I thought, wow, that makes sense. You know, the old, the old idea was that asking for help was a sign of weakness. The reality is that reaching out is a sign of strength. The old idea was forget about the past. The reality was making amends is a necessity. It's mandatory if you're going to recover here. The old idea was that God was punishing and unloving, and the reality is that God is just the opposite. And I had an awful problem with, with, with the spiritual part of AA first when I came here, because I had grown up in this, this evangelical home, and God was punishing, you know. I mean, for some of the things I thought, I knew I had a one-way ticket to hell in a hurry. And uh, I get here, and you're talking about God as I understand him. And I couldn't get it. And I, after 11 months in Cornerbrook sober, I got transferred to Halifax, Nova Scotia. And something marvelous happened just before I left Cornerbrook. They had a special meeting, and they gave me my one-year medallion and my first-year AA cake, one month in trust. You could not have poured a drink into me during that time, I want to tell you. That was the first time that I came to recognize how much people in Alcoholics Anonymous loved me, and I loved them. And there was a guy there whose name was Mike, and Mike and I had a special bond. We were uh, sober about the same length of time. And on the night that we had that meeting, uh, I was trying to say thank you, and, and Mike was standing behind me, and I could hear him crying. And when I finished, I turned around and I said, Mikey, what's wrong? And he said, I have one brother, only one natural brother. And if I had a choice tonight between him leaving and you leaving, I would rather he left, because you're my soul brother. And I got to Halifax, and I, <laughs> I was in the hotel about two hours, and the phone rang. And this guy said, you less? And I said, yeah. He said, my name is Gordon. And I said, oh, yeah. He said that there's a meeting tonight at 8 o'clock in Dartmouth. I didn't know who this guy was. And no idea at all. And I said, who are you and why are you calling me? He said, I want you to go to a meeting tonight. I told you, my name is Gordon. I said, how did you find me? He said, Cliff called. <laughs> I knew the network was out then. You know, the FBI had nothing on this outfit. <laughs> and I started to go to meetings in Halifax, and I started to grow in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I got involved in a whole lot of things. And the secret to getting sober and staying sober is a word called service. That's the secret. And I started to help other people, and I started to go to the Salvation Army and uh, with some friends put on meetings for the street people. And it's amazing what you can learn from them if you listen. You know, there was an old guy there, uh, and uh, he was a lawyer who had been disbarred in Nova Scotia. And, and again, he, there was some chemistry between he and I. And I'd go around after the meeting. They'd come primarily for the hot coffee and, and the donuts. You know, they did not come to get sober, most of them. They just came to get out of the cold and get something to eat. And I would go around and shake hands with them. And one night I was going by, and, and I shook hands with David. And uh, he said, uh, and he always called me Mr. Studley, you know, because he saw me on TV and he thought that was a big thing. And I tried to tell him that I was just a drunk, you know. And he said, Mr. Studley, how long have you been sober now? And I said, three and a half years, sir. He said, how old are you? And I said, I'm 31. And he said, you have two children? I said, yes, sir, two boys. He said, you may well have another drink, a drunk left in you. 
My question is very important. Do you have another recovery? And I didn't know how to answer him. And David taught me a lesson. And six weeks later, we found David in the alleyway of a theater on Barrington Street in Halifax, frozen to death. But David left me with a message. And I wrestled with this thing called God, and I, I was working early morning radio, and, and I would drive from my house down around uh, the Halifax uh, arm and into the city, and I did it every, every morning at 6 o'clock for the whole winter. And then, one morning in May, something happened that I hadn't planned on. I came around the turn, and I went around up to, as I was coming up to the arm, it seemed to me everything changed overnight. The trees were green, the sun was reflected in the water, and it was absolutely calm. And this thought, as Father Martin says, found my vacuum. No human power could do the change that I had seen. And I drove down the street called Quintle Road toward the radio station interiors saying the Lord's Prayer, and I couldn't understand that. What I didn't know then was that a process had started. And a few weeks later, I went to San Francisco to a young people's conference. I was a young person then. And uh, <laughs> I went out there, and uh, they had divided the conference at the San Francis Hotel. Uh, they, they had divided the conference into six separate uh, discussion groups on the steps, you know. Step one and two was session one, step three and four was session number two. So on Saturday morning, I walked into session two. Being a Newfoundlander, I went to the second one first. And, uh, and there's about 20 people sitting around a table. And across from me sat the dirtiest person I'd ever seen, Alcoholics Anonymous. He had long, stringy brown hair, and he had about a three-day growth of beard, and he had a t-shirt on that had never seen tied, Okay, it had, I think, some eggs from his breakfast on it, and a pair of jeans that were more de uh, patches than denim and dirty toenails with a pair of sandals. And I thought, this is a recovery. By now, I'm Mr. Middle America or Middle Canadian AA. You know, I got the, the Harris Tweed jacket, okay, with the shirt and tie and the blue slacks and the shiny shoes. And uh, this thing is sitting across from me, and uh, they're discussing the third step. And it got my turn. And I said, I don't understand that step. Made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand him. I don't understand that. And this thing looked at me and said, shithead, <laughs> you do that the way you stay sober a day at a time. Now, nobody before had ever said it so articulately. <laughs> and I, I do what I normally do when something, somebody tells me something that I want to really get. I said, I beg your pardon? He said, what's wrong, shithead? Are you deaf, too? Want to have a resentment in a hurry? Sit at a meeting like that. The next morning, the Sunday, they were closing the meeting with a BYOHP, bring your own higher power. And sitting on my left was a young man about six and a half feet tall. He had brown hair, brushed and shiny, coming down to the collar of a blue plaid shirt. He wore blue cords, white socks, and a pair of sneakers, and he looked like recovery. And when it came time to say the Lord's Prayer, he took my left hand and he squeezed so hard it hurt. And when it finished, I turned to him and I said, I want to thank you for yesterday. You've really helped me. And he smiled and looked down at me and said, shithead, you helped me too. What is there in that picture? It's called an altered state of attitude. See, I'm sure he wasn't as bad as I perceived him to be on Saturday. It was the way I saw him. And things changed. And I got on a plane that afternoon, and I was flying across the United States, and I knew, I knew somewhere over the Great Plains that the answer to my dilemma of this God in AA lay with my father, whom I had taken to some AA meetings, who got it. He never drank in his life. He got it long before I did, you know. And when I got home, I called him, and I said, Dad, I'm going to come home. I want to go fishing with you. He was a fisherman, big, rugged, raw-boned Newfoundland fisherman with a great four education and a photographic mind. 
okay, and the ability to assess any given situation much faster than his son. And we went fishing, and we, we tied up to a salmonette that he had, and uh, I knew I had to ask a question, and I was scared to death. I'm three years sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I don't know what to do. And I finally blurted out, what do you believe like you do? And he said, I just do. I just do. I said, I know that, but I have to know why. I have to know why. And he gave me this, and I shared it with people across this continent, and I share it with you this morning. And if you're new here, please hear this, because it is so simple. He said, you and I, uh, you and I were... Uh, Christmas shopping last year in Halifax. He used to come and spend the winters with us after Mother died. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, we visited a mall. And I said, yes. And he said, we passed a bookstore. And I said, yes. And he said, there was a big rack of books out in front of that bookstore. I said, was there? He said, yes. And he said, do you know what was on the cover of every book on that rack? And I said, no, sir. He said, who has seen the wind? I said, oh, that's W.O. Mitchell's book. I interviewed him. He said, I don't care about that. See, he's still trying to impress. He said, I didn't read the book. I just read the cover. And I thought, what has this got to do with what I'm asking you about? And he turned and he said, Les. And he pointed to the little fishing village that we grew up in. He said, you and I grew up there. I said, yes, sir. He said, they tell me there are more widows in that town per capita than any other town in Canada. And I said, yes, sir, I can believe that. He said, what made those women widows? I said, well, Dad, their, their husbands were lost at sea on boats. He said, right. And why were their husbands lost at sea on boats, Les? I said, well, sir, they ran into storms. And the storms upset the boats. And the men were drowned. He said, yeah, that's exactly what happened. And he said, what's associated with storms? I said, wind. He said, yes, wind. Now, he said, you're a smart fella. You went to university. You went to college. And you probably know why we have wind. And I said, yeah, it's not very complicated, Dad. It's a low-pressure system chasing a high or vice versa. He said, see, I don't understand that at all. I just know we have wind. And I know what the wind can do. I have seen it upset trawlers and schooners, and dories, and I have seen it drown men, and I have almost drowned myself a hundred times out here in the wind and the waves, and I have seen it topple trees and knock down buildings. But less, my son, I have never seen the wind. I have only seen what the wind can do. And he said, I've been going to church for over 60 years, and I have never God. I have just seen what God can do. And I would be a fool and a maniac to deny that the wind exists. And I would be just as much a fool and a maniac to deny that God exists. I want to tell you this morning here in Winnipeg that I have not doubted the existence of a power higher and greater than I am and we are since that morning in 1971. I have no reason to doubt it. We stepped out of Gary's car yesterday and I felt the wind. And I knew that God was. And God is. And I looked out the window this morning and I saw trees with branches moving. And I knew that God is. I just know. And nothing will ever change that. <sighs> I believe that life was an old experience and dreadful experience, and the reality is that life is an adventure and a discovery and a joy. I believe that there was no solution, and I have discovered that there is a solution. And it is found in this book called Alcoholics Anonymous. You see, I believe my dad misspoke on that morning in July of 1971. I believe that he had seen God. He had just not recognized it. And unlike my father, I have been blessed to recognize it. And I see God 
every day. Every single day I am sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. I saw God last night in the face of a lovely black woman who reminds me of Aretha Franklin. I saw her eyes and I saw her smile and I saw her tears and I felt her pain and I felt her joy. And I saw God yesterday morning when George stopped three times in his talk because the power of what happened to him was overpowering him. That's God. It's very simple. And if you think for a minute and you stop for a minute right now and if you put your hands like that just like that right now you will feel a presence in this room. You'll feel it. And in a few minutes, we're going to close this meeting, and you're really going to feel it. Okay? Because it is going to be transmitted. And the way it's transmitted is between God's children. We'll hold hands. And the power in this room will generate and increase and increase and increase until we finish. And I know that because I have felt that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it is real. It is absolutely real. I felt it yesterday in Gary's car. I felt it when we stepped out in the cold and looked at Winnipeg, Lake Winnipeg again from the shores of Gimli, where I had my first drink. I felt the all-consuming power of a loving God. And people have said to me in Alcoholics Anonymous, well, you shouldn't talk about God so much. And I say to them, what's the first word in the serenity prayer after the 30-second silence? Think about that. Think about that. And what's happened is that I've learned to think in Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, when I went to Alcoholics Anonymous, and Cliff and I would have our famous discussions, you know, uh, I would take this program apart. And they had slogans up. And one of the slogans they had was, Think, Think, Think. And I was decrying Alcoholics Anonymous one night uh, to Cliff, and he said, uh, I said, you know, these, these stupid, idiot sayings that you have, like, let go and let God, one day at a time, and easy does it. And I said, the one that really pisses me off is, Think, Think, Think. And he didn't bat an eye. He said, in your case, it's with what, what, what. <laughs> and we would sit in the Seven Seas restaurant in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, on Thursday nights when we weren't working, and we would have our sponsor-sponsee sessions. And for four months, he asked him the same two questions every single Thursday night. He said, how do you feel? And do you want to get well? And for the first three months, I'd answer the first question, how do you feel? I'd say, I think, and he'd say, Les, I didn't ask you what you thought. I asked you what you felt. And then he'd say, do you want to get well? And I'd say, Cliff, what fool in their right mind would say no to that? And he'd say, then you'll do what I tell you to do. Okay? And see, one of the lost arts in Alcoholics Anonymous and one of the vital parts of Alcoholics Anonymous, I don't know what it's like here in Winnipeg, now, where you come from, but I know in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, we're losing the importance of sponsorship. We are. Let's be honest. And if we don't keep it, we'll die. We'll die. I owe that man my life, literally and figuratively. I was about three months sober, and all he ever said to me, we worked together, he was a set designer, and we worked together, and every, every morning we'd have a little session, and he'd say, don't drink and go to meetings. Don't drink and go to meetings. Don't take one drink for one day. And I got sick and tired of hearing don't take one drink for one day. And about three months in, I was going at home for lunch one day, and I was going down the hill in Cornerbrook by the paper mill, and this spot found my vacuum. I thought, oh my God, if I don't take one drink for one day, a day at a time, I never have to drink again for the rest of my life. 
And I said it out loud to myself in the car, if I don't take one drink for one day, a day at a time, I never have to drink again for the rest of my life. All I got to do is go to those meetings. And I was so excited I couldn't eat lunch. And I went back to the television station, up the hill, up the steps to where Cliff was working. I said, Cliff, what's wrong with you now? I said, listen, Cliff, you got to listen to this. Cliff, listen. I said, here's what I figured out. If I don't take one drink for one day, a day at a time, I never have to drink again for the rest of my life. And he gave me the look. You know, the sponsor look, like dummy. He said, Les, I've been trying to tell you that for three months. And I hate to tell you, you know, that I was that mentally challenged, I didn't get it. But I got it. I got it. Life has been an absolute incredible journey with highs and lows with days of pain, but most importantly, days of joy. And that man who told me about the wind, seven years before he died, he said to me one night when he was visiting, you and I have to have a little chat. And when Father said we had to have a little chat, then it was important. So we sat down after supper and he said, I'm, uh, I'm 70 years old now, my son. And I said, yeah, I know. And he said, I'm going to die soon. And I said, oh, Dad, let's not have a morbid conversation. He said, but I'm going to die soon. I don't know how soon is, but I'm going to die. And here's what I want to happen. He said, I'd like to die in church. And I said, you're right. He said, I'd like to die in church. He belonged to the Salvation Army. And he was, he was a, a praying member of the Salvation Army. And he said, some of the best moments I've had in my life have been at church services. So I'd like to die in church. And he said, when I die, I want you to do the eulogy at my funeral. Because I've heard you talk in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I know, I know that you believe. And I said, Pops, I believe because of you and the wind. And we laid out some other things, and I was smart. I made some notes. And seven years later, on a Sunday night, I got a call from my sister. And she said, there's been a, a thing happened at the church service with Dad. And I knew he was dead. I knew. And uh, they called me back a few minutes later, and they said, uh, he had a heart attack right after he finished a prayer. And he sat down, and he fell over, and it was all gone in 30 seconds. And so we made arrangements to go home, and I got home the next night, and I, I walked up to the casket, and I bent down and I kissed him on the forehead, and I said, you should have been careful what you prayed for. <laughs> and I swear to you, I heard him laugh. <laughs> I really did. <laughs> you know, I got what I wanted. And on Wednesday afternoon, I stood in the church, which was standing room only, and they had the Salvation Army Band, and they had the Timber Brigade, and they had the hand clapping, and they had the hymns that he wanted, and the readings that he wanted, and boy did we send him out with a blast. Okay? It was absolutely the most joyous event I've ever attended in my life. It was just glorious. You know? And uh, it came my turn, and I stood in front of all his friends and the family, and, and I talked about Phil Studley. And I was calmer then than I am now. And we sent him home. Because I am convinced beyond shadow of doubt that there is beyond this the fellowship of the Spirit. There is a place where the Spirit lives, and I believe we will all be there. And I believe I'll meet Cliff again in the fellowship of the Spirit. And I believe I will see Phil again. And we'll talk about the wind in the fellowship of the Spirit. And why do I believe that? Let me close with this. 
God, I've gone a lot. Uh, on page 164 of the book Alcoholics Anonymous, there is the absolute most incredible piece of summary of this recovery program that I know. It says, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. Let me share that again. When I moved to Halifax, I made friends with the senior news editor of CBC Maritime News. His name was Doug Fraser. He was not an alcoholic, but he was one of the most educated, well-read men I ever met. And over a period of time, he got to know that I was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I don't keep it a secret. I didn't, uh, I didn't mind advertising it in front of 100,000 drunk, and I don't care who knows what I'm sober, okay? And uh, I don't break my anonymity at the public level, but I'm not, I'm not the least reluctant to tell people that I belong to this organization and why I belong here. And he said, Les, I, I, I've heard about this book called Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, yes, Dougie, I have a copy. He said, I'd like to read it. I said, I'll bring it in. So I brought it in the next day, and I gave Doug my big book, and he took it home, and about 10 days later, he brought it back. And I said, what do you think, Doug? He said, well, from a literary point of view, it is not a great book. I said, no, I know that. But he said, from a philosophical lifestyle way to live, it rivals the Bible. And he said, it is beyond belief what sensible things are in that book. And he said, I particularly liked the last page before the personal stories. I said, oh, really? I said, I have a problem with that. He said, you do? I said, yeah. I said, I think the word abandon in the last paragraph is wrong. He said, it's absolutely right. I said, I don't think so. He said, I'll prove it. So the next day he came in, and he had the first volume of the double volume of Funkin' Wagnall Dictionary. He had the first volume of the Webster's Dictionary, and he had the first volume of the double volume Oxford Dictionary. And he had yellowed the word abandon. And about the fourth meaning of the word abandon in the Funkin' Wagnall, the Webster's, and the Oxford is this. Give entirely of oneself. Give entirely of oneself. Give without qualification. Now let me read it. Give without qualification yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. You cannot, I believe, I cannot, live successfully carrying around the garbage of the past. It is absolutely mandatory for me to get rid of that gunny sack on my back that carries all the pain. It is absolutely imperative that I look at my faults and I get rid of them. Clear away the wreckage of the past. See, nobody, nobody that I've ever met in Alcoholics Anonymous lived successfully in yesterday. You've got to get rid of it. Give freely of what you find and join us. There's the paradox. The more you give it away, the more you get. It is absolutely astounding. And if you try to charge for it, it doesn't work. Give freely of what you find and join us. Now, what does that mean? Well, see, that means to me that you don't sit on the periphery criticizing. You get right in the middle and you do what you have to do, like the people who put this conference together did. They got right at it, and they did the job. And then Wilson, with divine guidance, said, if you do that, if you do those simple things, if you, if you give yourself to God, if you admit your faults, if you clear away the wreckage of your past, and if you give it away, and you get involved, then this will happen to you. You will surely meet some of us in the fellowship of the Spirit. What's that? Well, that fellowship of the Spirit, for me, is when Marlene called and said, would you come to Winnipeg? When I meet somebody and they say, let's go to Tim's for a coffee. 
Or I meet someone in the mall and they'll say, how you doing, Lance? They don't say, you drinking today? You're thinking about drinking today? How you doing? How are things? How is your life? How is your spiritual connection today? How you doing? That's the fellowship of the Spirit. It's that connection that we feel with each other. And I have met some of you as I trudged the road of happy destiny. I've met you in Newfoundland, and today, the first time I've had an opportunity to share in Manitoba, I have met you again. And I pray, God, I will continue to meet you in the fellowship of the Spirit. I have stayed long enough for the miracle to happen, and the miracle is simply this, that because of you and Cliff and Dad and the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and doing the best I can with them, a day at a time. I have come to love you. The selfish, egotistical broadcaster of 1968 is gone and has been replaced, I believe, by a gentle, loving, caring man. And that happened because of you and God. And I have come to love you. And my miracle is that some of you I've come to love me. Thank you.